Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. This morning has just been all kinds of crazy. I don't know, maybe in my world. I feel like I've been all over the place. We had a guest speaker in here. There's the deaf gospel meeting going on in the auditorium. And I was helping run the streaming for that during class this morning. So unfortunately, I missed Ben's lesson. But I'm going to be honest, thanks to Troy, I understood way more of a lesson that was being taught in there that didn't have an interpreter, for those who didn't know sign language, than I thought I would. And um, so we're actually running two live streams today. If you're not looking for me, go to our webpage and there's another link. And it'll take you to the one for the, the class for the Deaf Gospel meeting. I'm actually kind of excited. We're about to start doing two streams every Sunday. So we can actually have a stream dedicated just for those who need one that's being interpreted for the hearing impaired. And then one for everyone else so that it'll actually be way easier to see the interpreter instead of it just being a small box down in the corner. You'll actually be able to see the interpreter. So hopefully that'll make that stream more useful for those who need it. So we're talking about Galatians. A few weeks ago, JB gave us a great introduction to the book of Galatians. Um, Last week, well, then we took a week off, right, JB? Uh, Glenn preached, and then last week he gave us Galatians chapter 1. And so I've been charged uh, to get us through chapter 2, and I'm going to try to get us about halfway through chapter 3. We'll have to see how we do on time. I fully admit when it comes to classes, I'm a horrible judge on whether or not I have too much material or not enough material. So all I can promise is you'll either be out early or you'll have to stay late. (laughs) Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. Can you go ahead and throw, I have one slide, all of one slide in my PowerPoint. And it has to be a map because I'm married to a cartographer. And in our house, everything boils down to, well, let's go look on the map, and you better know the difference between a peninsula and an isthmus and an island and what the capital of Mali is and all those other fun things. But we're told here that he went up again to Jerusalem. In chapter 1, we saw that after the road to Damascus, Paul spent about three years in Arabia. We're not, we don't know exactly where he was or what was going on then. We know that he then went up to Jerusalem for the first time, and at the very end of it, we find... Uh, at the end of chapter 1, that he had been in the area of Syria and Cilicia. I just said you had to know where they are. I didn't say you had to know how to pronounce them, Brandon. Which is interesting, because these are the areas that Paul was originally from. But that's where he's been for 14 years. Um, Today, these are kind of the areas, so Syria here is kind of Syria today, except it goes too far south and too far north It runs way up into what would be Turkey today. It goes all the way down past what would be Lebanon. Seleucia doesn't exist anymore. These are actually Roman providences that we're looking at here. And of course, you see just above Seleucia there, you have the providence of Galatia. But this is where Paul is. He's been up in this area. It makes sense near his hometown. 
So chapter 2 is starting off by telling us that then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and I also took Titus with me and I went up by revelation. So revelation. This is a word that I think most of us, including myself, when we hear it, we tend to think of some miraculous thing. So when we look at this, I went up by revelation, I know at least for me, your first thought is, oh, he was miraculously told to go up to Jerusalem. I don't think that's what this is saying. And I think the reason we think that is because of the book of Revelation, which has a lot of miraculous stuff and imagery that gets revealed. But if we go look at the biblical use of the word revelation, we're simply talking about the number one usage is it's just been laid bare or made naked. A disclosure of truth or instruction, specifically concerning things that were before unknown or used by events of which things or stakes a person Hitherto withdrawn from view, basically things you haven't seen before, but now you're seeing a manifestation or an appearance. So Paul is going up by revelation and communicated with them, this is connected, right? That's an and, and communicated with them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. I don't know about you, but I think the first question I was asking myself by the time I got to this point, was why? Why, Paul? You've been there for 14 years. Why, after 14 years, did you find it necessary to go up and reveal to those who were in Jerusalem what you had been teaching among the Gentiles? And we're absolutely going to get there, but unfortunately not till a whole lot closer to uh, verse 3. So let's finish up where we are here in verse 2. But privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. But privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or have run in vain. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I hear people teach this passage, they teach it from the point of view was, well, this was Paul being careful, so he's not seen as being someone you know, who wants to be known with people who are famous, people who are well-known, people who are powerful and important. Right? This is his way to protect his reputation, because a lot of those people weren't Christians. Right? This was a way for him to guard himself. And I'll give you, I can't prove that that's not part of what Paul's talking about here, but when I was preparing for this lesson, it dawned on me that by doing this, Paul was doing as much or more to help the person he's teaching you ever thought about that? When you go teach someone the gospel who's never heard it before, a lot of the time, especially in the United States, you're asking them to put aside everything they have likely ever been taught about the Bible and look at it with fresh eyes. So that had to happen to me. I grew up in denominational churches, about three or four different denominational churches. And the first time I walked in the door of a church of Christ, you better believe my poor, at that time, girlfriend, now wife, was having to put up with an awful lot of snide comments out of me based on what I'd heard about the church of Christ. We won't mention what denominations my family's staunch members of, but staunch is often put in front of the rest of it. So to ask someone to put 
all of that aside and look at the scripture, or at this point the revelation that was being taught by Paul and others, honestly and openly, right, is no small thing. Trust me. To get to a point where they're willing to not only say, I was wrong, but likely mom and dad were wrong, grandma was wrong, grandpa was wrong. You're asking them to do an awful, awful lot of ego shedding. And that's way easier to do in private the first time than it is in public the first time. Compound to that, the specific people that Paul's talking about here, someone who's of reputation or report or known among people or someone who seemed to be important, now you're asking that person who's got all these other people looking at him thinking they're important to stand up and say, I was wrong publicly? That's an even bigger ask. We already know that there were, there were those among the, um, uh, the teachers in Jerusalem that would go to Jesus privately, but not publicly. Right? And so I think it's no small thing that Paul points out here, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Sure, that could be talking about his reputation and protecting him, but also had run or run in vain that he's not wasting his time teaching these people. So we find this statement, and we still haven't answered the question of why. Why did Paul feel the need to go up to Jerusalem after 14 years and tell them what he'd been teaching um, among the Gentiles? We then have this interesting note that, hey, I've been teaching people in privately. I'm not doing this so that I can be seen teaching these people. I'm teaching them for the purpose of what I'm teaching. And we get to verse 3. Don't worry. Hey, look, we made it. It took us 10 minutes. We made it all the way to verse 3, and I think we're going to get halfway through chapter 3. Verse 3, he tells us, Not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Okay, we're starting to get to the heart of the matter. We're starting to get to the reason why he's writing to them and telling them, hey, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. I told them what I was teaching among the Gentiles. And I was there, not even Titus, and guess what? He's Greek, was compelled to be circumcised by Paul nor anyone else. Excuse me, Titus. Verse 4. And this occurred because of the false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that, that they might bring bondage unto us, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So there it is. That's the whole point. There were false brethren. You know, Delmar, false teacher's bad enough. But when I read the words false brethren, somehow that just seems even worse. It's one to see someone who is teaching falsely and they're at least willing to stand up and do it and you know it. It's another thing when they claim to be your brother. And I find it interesting here that it doesn't just say that they were there 
can't move my notes and I can't find them. It says they were sent in, secretly brought in. So there seems to be a bit of a campaign here. Now, if you study the life of Paul at all, there's a couple things that I think jump out at you. A couple, I guess it's been a couple years ago now. I got to teach the better part of the second part, of, second half of Acts, um, a class I did with Brother Kerry Waddell, and I loved it because I was mostly getting to follow Paul around on his missionary journeys. There's an interesting thing about Paul. When he showed up in town, he was sent to the Gentiles, right? That's where Paul's going. But when Paul got to a new town, what's the first thing he did? He went and found the Gentiles, right? No. Where'd he go? This is a clash. Y'all know this. The synagogues. He went to the Jews. He went there first. And who were usually the people that ran him out of town? Same people. The ones that didn't accept what he taught. Lots of them did. But the ones who didn't accept what he taught were the ones that ran him out. So it's because of this exact type of treatment and false brethren secretly brought in that we find this whole description of Paul telling us about going up to Jerusalem, that he went there. And why are they being harassed? Who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus. I find it interesting that, at least in the New King James here, that the word we get is liberty. Because we live in the United States, right? And that's a word that we like to use. It's a word that's often connected to, you know, good old Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. Liberty. Well, the way we use that word today, it's a state of being, a state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authorities on one's way of life, behavior, or political views. Well, I think given what Paul's describing here that we have in Christ Jesus, compared to what the Jews had in the old law, that's a pretty good description. (laughs) Biblically, when we read the word liberty, it's liberty to do or omit things having no relationship to salvation. I found it interesting that that was the first definition listed. And um, I, I tend to use the blueletterbible.org. I just like the interlinear that it has, not because it's better than any other. I've just figured out which buttons to click and how to find what I'm looking for. So, you know, I'm hard to retrain to new stuff. But the very first definition it gave there for this Greek word is liberty to do or omit things that have no relationship to salvation. And what were the Jews pestering people about? That were pretending to be brothers and sleeping in secretly. Well, apparently, since he made the point of making sure we knew that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised, that circumcision must be part of this. And Paul's pointing out that they did not yield or submit, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Verse 6, but those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. So not only did he teach them in secret, but he's making it be quite well known that his knowing them and having those relationships did him no, no benefit. God is no 
favor of persons, shows no personal favoritism to any man. And Paul was doing everything he could to make sure he was behaving exactly the same way. Among these people who seem to be something. This was interesting, I'm going to be honest, when I was putting this together, I did something amazing. I'm a little off place in my notes. It's because I was actually prepared before the last minute for this lesson. I like On Thursday, I had like most of my outline done. Had it done yesterday. I knew this was going to be a busy weekend. Had like most of it done by 10 o'clock yesterday. You don't understand. When I teach, it's usually I finish, I sleep, we worship, I teach. Right. So having actually spent hours between looking at it, it's new to me. But when I was putting this together last week, and he's talking about all these people who seem to be something. I was reminded of, of something that happened a few, well, I guess it was like two weeks ago now. My family for fall break had gone up to um, the Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg area, right? We took the boys and we were, you know, just spending a week. And um, my wife, not only did she drag me to church and we started dating, but she also introduced me to this substance called, this mystical substance called dark chocolate that I had become quite addicted to. And Smoky Mountain Chocolate Works is always on our stop when we're anywhere near Gatlinburg. And so I'm in there with my sons because I have to get dark chocolate almond bark because it's required. You have not been to Gatlinburg if you don't. Some people have to have pancakes. I get it. Everybody's got their own thing. I needed dark chocolate almond bark. And while I'm in there, there was this lady that was, and I know you've had this happen, at a, at a counter, right? She's like half starting to check out. She has engaged with the teller. No transaction has been started on the till. So I'm waiting for her to finish, but then she gets distracted by her kids who are around around doing stuff. And I'm like, okay, no big deal. You know, deal with the kids. I'm just waiting patiently. But then it happened, and this is where I lost it. Three little girls came running up to this lady. I have no clue who she is. Are you a TikToker? Well, to them, she seemed to be somebody. And to me, she was in my way because I needed my dark chocolate. And the crazy part was before I could get out of that store with my dark chocolate, three more groups of people came up to her and said, are you a TikToker? I still have no clue who this woman is, nor have I wasted any time looking. But she seemed to be somebody. To those people, I kind of felt sorry for them. I'm like, how much time do you spend on that little app that you randomly recognize this person who's clearly just out on vacation with her family in Gatlinburg, Dealing with a kid screaming, being a three-year-old, look to me, three or four-year-old, like three or four-year-olds tend to be. But to some folks, she seemed to be somebody. Verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. Okay, hold on. This is exactly what I think those that Paul's trying to warn them against would have wanted him to do, yet here he is writing it. He's speaking of a gospel for the circumcised being committed to Peter and a gospel for the uncircumcised. That sounds like there's two different teachings. Beginning of verse 8. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. Who brought both these men this gospel? Again, not a trick question. Holy Spirit. 
Who sent the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to these men? Jesus. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles as they to the circumcised. Wait, 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 wait. Paul seems to have a lot of people who seem to be important, yet now his very argument is, hey, I went to these same people, these people who seem to be important, hold to be important, and they said, yes, you go teach to the uncircumcised just as we are teaching to the circumcised. Now here's the important part, verse 10. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which we also were eager to do. Hey, 14 years ago, or 14 years I spent teaching, then I went back up to Jerusalem, I told them everything that I was teaching among the Gentiles, the folks that you claimed that you seem to be pillars, right? These important men, they received us, they showed us fellowship, and they basically said, Go forth and keep doing good. Don't forget the poor. I find it interesting that after all this discussion about people who seem to be important in somebody, Peggy, what's the one thing they tell them to make sure you do? Remember the poor. So there's a lot in this. We've already walked through a lot of it here. I mean, Paul is talking about how there is one gospel. It looks like two gospels. But it's the same gospel being carried by two different people. I mean, let's think about that. At first, you're like, oh, well, is it really the same gospel? I think there's a lesson in that for us. Doesn't mean they twisted the message to match who they were talking to. It means they taught it to them in a way that they would understand it. There's a very different way you would take the gospel to somebody who knows nothing of the Old Testament as opposed to someone who claimed to live by the Torah. There's a very different way you would approach starting a Bible study with someone who already believes that the Bible is the Word of God, and someone who goes, yeah, it's a book, a lot of people seem to like it. I've told the story in here before. I made the mistake one time with a co-worker very early in my career. I hate to say it, this has probably been over 20 years ago now, but it justifies the gray hair. I got in an argument with a gentleman. He told me there was nothing in the Bible against homosexuality. Hateful preachers made all that up. Really? Young hot-headed Tom marched to his car, came back with the Bible, and read him a good bit of Romans. To which he replied, well, but why should I listen to that? Because Tom started in the wrong place. Right? There's no point in having a Bible study with someone who doesn't understand what the Word of God is and what that means. So it's interesting that we see even amongst the apostles going to different groups, of course they use different ways to teach those people. Now I also find it interesting that Paul goes to the pillars to use as proof that what he's doing is okay And then go straight into an antidote about Peter, someone who I'm sure these people held in incredibly high regard, especially if they're trying to cling to those pieces of the old law, and if that's who Peter had been sent to. 
fact, I'm guessing these may be people who claim to have been taught at one time by Peter through their own travels, but I can't prove any of that. It's just Tom's opinion. Well, it's not really an opinion. It's speculation. (laughs) So then we get into this story, antidote in verse 11 about Peter. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, okay, now, let's put this in perspective. There's Antioch, right there, kind of near the coast of Syria. So now, Peter has come down from Jerusalem, I'll just say it, onto Paul's turf, because <laughs> they're going to two different groups of people. I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, okay, I'm going to assume that means before more men, let's, let's put this in somewhat in context, before more men from Jerusalem showed up, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. I mean, it's one thing if he wants to tell a story and pick on Peter, but did he have to drive Barnabas into this? I don't know. I can't prove it, but I have a growing theory that basically all sin boils down to hypocrisy. Well, I think I can prove most of it. I'm still working on it. It's a working theory. I think when it comes down to it, that thing which God ultimately detests is hypocrisy. And that's exactly what's happening here. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, all right, we're going to get into what he says here in a minute, but Peter, was Peter teaching anything wrong with his lips? Not that we're told. But it absolutely appears that he was with his actions. Because if Peter was teaching the gospel then he's going to be teaching that um, circumcision doesn't have a thing to do with your salvation if he's teaching Christ. If Peter's teaching Christ, he's, um, he's not teaching that you can only eat certain animals. He's not teaching that they have to be prepared in a certain way. Those are all from the law. Yet, as soon as others showed up, and it straight up says, because he feared those of the circumcision... He separated himself. He didn't want to be associated with them. Now, it seems to me that Peter became worried about his reputation. We continue on. And I said to Peter before them all, Okay, first of all, who is the all in this statement? We, we kind of have to infer it, but if we looked at what was already talked about here, I'm going to assume the all is going to be Peter, James, the other Jews, and the Gentiles. Everyone who was involved in this whole ordeal. Those who he was fellowshiping with, those he wasn't, those who had come down from Jerusalem, those who had been there the whole time and seen this happen. Because it says... I said to Peter before them all, I assume that's all those who are professing 
Christianity. Jews and Gentiles. And I think it's important when we talk about here and we say Jews and Gentiles. This is one of those things I think we need to remember. Oh, even trying to read the news these days. Jew and Gentile in this context where Paul's talking about it right now is an ethnicity, not a religious faith. Okay? I think today's people hear Jews in modern Israel and they think Old Testament. It's an ethnicity. It is not a faith. However, Peter was still clinging to aspects of that old law, right? We can see that by his actions. He was at least still worried about those who knew those, who knew that there was a time in his life that he followed those traditions. So Paul does a really great attempt, in my opinion, at trying to be included as described as one of those people, the sons of thunder, with the discourse he's about to deliver to these gentlemen. So here he goes. If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build a house whose things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Hold on, that's an important point, especially when he's talking to a bunch of folks who used to hold to the law. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul's teaching pretty plainly here. I mean, you have to realize, he's speaking to people, even those who are making this mistake of separating themselves, he's teaching people who firmly understood who Christ was and the sacrifice that Christ had made for them. He's simply reminding them that if you go back to the law, then you're saying he died in vain. Because there's no salvation in the law. Salvation is in Christ. It was the law that led him to Christ. And it was in Christ that he died. And now he lives by Christ. If he needed only the law, there would have been no need of Christ's death. And it's this fact that he's reminding the Galatians of. Again, I think it's important here that this isn't here to shame Peter. 
I think, if anything, this is here as an example among people who see some people who they think are something, that, hey, guess what? I went and talked to the people that you also think are something. They approved of what I'm teaching. And it's okay that you guys are having problems because even those people have made mistakes in the past. And some of this stuff is hard. Kind of like I mentioned before, when you go to people in privately, especially when now you're doing something that's different than what mom and dad did and what grandma and grandpa did, you're not necessarily going to get it perfect on the first attempt. All right. He's showing that those in Jerusalem, the Pyrrhalers, approved of his teaching, that even Peter, Barnabas, and the others required and accepted correction. There you go, that's chapter 2. We made it. Now, JB, we're going to get ahead. Let's look at chapter (laughs) 3. I only want to look at the first part here. There's too much here, and I don't want to... I don't want to risk glossing over something that's, that's really important, but let's look, at, let's look at chapter 3 and see if we can get maybe through about half of it. I'm not sure we have quite that much time. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before, those, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes this is a phrase that I almost want to like yell at my TV when I see other people who claim to be Christians doing horrible, hateful things in the name of Christianity. Um, mostly because I think it's, they think it's going to somehow make themselves feel better, like they're doing something. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Again, let's put ourselves in their place. Paul is writing the book of Galatians as a letter that's being sent to these people. So they don't have what I hear rustling in your laps right now as we're looking at this text. And he's asking them quite plainly. They've received what? The Spirit. Now, when I look at this passage, I take that to mean the Spirit and the miraculous gifts thereof, especially in the age we're in and who it was that was doing the teaching in the area. But we find them here, and he's asking them plainly, how is it that you received the Spirit? From the works of the law? Did you have the Spirit when you were obeying circumcision? Dietary restrictions? Offering sacrifices? Did those things bring you the Spirit? No. It was by the hearing of faith. By hearing the gospel. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you now being made perfect... Excuse me. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? I mean, he says it quite plainly here. You see the miracles. You have the Spirit. How did this come to you? Was it by the law? By works of the flesh? No, it was by your faith. Just as Abraham believed God 
and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know thy only those who of faith... Okay, we gotta get, I got to say this right, because this is important. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. He just said Christians are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all, I underline that in my notes, all nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So I think we're starting to see a bit more of a glimpse of what's going on with these Galatians is causing Paul to need to write this letter. And what I'd like to do, and in, in I want to take, we've got about four minutes left, I want to take the last little bit of our time and I want to look at the next three passages because I think this is important. And I'm not going to say we're going to be able to have time to fully finish this and explain it, but let's at least hear it once. And then you'll get the better version of it next week when JB teaches again. How about that? That seems fair. Verse 10. For as many as are of works of the law are under the curse. Now, when I went to blueletter.org and I looked up the Greek word there for curse, I loved it because the first two words I had to go look up what they even meant. But it's a curse. It's a spoken curse. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's out of Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the works of this law. Notice there again that word we just saw before. All the works of this law by observing them. And all the people shall say amen. Alright, now verse 11, Galatians 3. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for, quote, the just shall live by faith. So he started in Deuteronomy. Now he jumps to the prophets, Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but he, but the, but the just shall live by his faith. Verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Back to Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. If a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Back to Deuteronomy 21.22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you sure you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the lamb which the Lord your God is given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Verse 14. That the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I mean, Paul does a beautiful job here of going all the way back and going, look, the law is a curse. Oh, and guess what? That was even pointed out in Deuteronomy. 
No one's justified by the law in the sight of evident because they shall live by faith. Even the prophets said that. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by faith. Even in Leviticus, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. And then he goes on. And he's going to point out to him that the law has not changed. The promise of the law hasn't changed. The purpose of the law hasn't changed. And that we are all sons and heirs through Christ. Thank you. I appreciate it. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.